Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Play to pod. Morning from a really sunny London again. We were getting really lucky with the weather this year. Well, eventually. Um, this is Dr. Ruth Glenn Owen, and I'm bringing you episode five of the Play to Pod Meet the Experts series two. In this episode, we're going to be speaking to Professor Elizabeth Lorgerson, who is the creator of the Peers Programme, which is an evidence-based social skills model for children and young people with autism and other developmental delays. I was honoured to um, host Professor Lorgerson in London a few years ago for the first ever certified peer training over here. And I was also really lucky in doing my own training with Liz in Portugal a few years before that. So it's great to have Liz on the episode. And this is a special episode too. Both Liz and I have lost very special friends recently, very special furry friends. Um, So we would like to dedicate this episode to Buckley and to Buster, who have given us both a lot of joy in our lives. And it's something that we were talking about um, before and after the podcast, how lucky we were to have had such special dogs in our lives. So this episode is about social skills and friendship and is also dedicated to two little fairy friends that we had um, so thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy it. We are going to be talking to Professor Liz Lorgerson today and she's the Associate Clinical Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UCLA and she's the Director of the Peers Clinic there and also the developer of the Peers Model so welcome to Play to Pod Liz it's great to speak to you. Lovely to speak to you as well Ruth thank you for having me. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, so, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, for people that don't know anything about you, and, um, and the work that you do with individuals with autism in particular, and, and how, how did you start to kind of, decide, how did you decide to work in this field? Yeah, well, thank you for the question. So, I am, um, by training, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, but as you mentioned, I'm also an associate clinical professor in the Department of Uh, child and adolescent psychiatry at at UCLA. And and my primary research and clinical interests are in developing, testing, and also disseminating or sharing evidence-based social skills interventions for um, individuals with autism spectrum disorder and and other social challenges. And you asked the question about sort of how I ended up in this field. And, you know, there's sort of like the personal story, and then there's sort of the professional story. So I don't know which you would, would prefer. I could share both if you'd like. And, and Yeah, both would be good. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the personal story is that, you know, I moved around a lot when I was a child. I don't know if you know that about me, Ruth, but I went to 13 different schools by the time mm-hmm. I got my doctorate. And I lived in 21 different places by the time I was 24. So I definitely had to learn to kind of decode my social world um, pretty quickly, um, pretty frequently as a, as a child and even as a young adult. And I think um, that's probably the the personal side of the story in terms of what interests me in, in social skills and even social skills training is just having to kind of navigate the social world and, and decode things. Um, the professional story is that I went to UCLA um, as a pre-doctoral psychology intern, and I was specializing in, in working with families with 
youth with developmental disabilities. And that's where I discovered social skills training. And I, I'd never really known much about social skills training up until that point. I, you know, it was maybe like a paragraph in a, in a textbook in grad mm -hmm. school or something. Um, and so I was sort of enlisted to run a, a social skills group um, as an intern and what I loved about the whole process of social skills training was that to me, it sort of felt like a different approach to mental health issues. Yeah. Um, up until that point, I was, you know, I felt like I was constantly putting out fires, if you know what I mean, you know, mm -hmm. you know kids in crisis and dealing with um, crisis intervention, even suicide assessments and, and prevention. And, and what I loved about social skills training was that to me, it felt like fire prevention. Um, rather than putting out fires. It's very positive. It's very proactive. And it's all mm -hmm. about building sort of coping skills and strengths um, to help to avoid um, the negative mental health outcomes that come from not having friends or from being teased or bullied or rejected in some way. And, and so the, the last part of the story is that, you know, as I was um, doing this social skills uh, training program at UCLA, we were working with kids with prenatal alcohol exposure. And even though the study wasn't focused on autistic youth, our phone was ringing off the hook from parents of adolescents on the autism spectrum who were just looking for a social skills program in the community. And this was back in 2003 in Los Angeles, which is a pretty big metropolitan area, and there was nowhere to refer them. Those programs just didn't exist back then. And I felt like that wasn't okay. We needed to develop something, but make sure that it actually worked. And so I was able to secure a three-year funded um, T32 postdoctoral fellowship from the National Institutes of Health to develop and, and test peers. So that's sort of the story of how I ended up in this field and, and also how we ultimately developed the peers intervention. Peers is worldwide now, isn't it? It's not just a, a project in UCLA. Yeah, it's actually now used in over 125 countries, and it's been translated into over a dozen languages. And we not only have programs for adolescents now, but also for young adults and preschoolers and mm -hmm. focus on a, a wide variety of social skills. When we first met, I was really lucky to be able to do the, the peer certification um, training with yourself in Portugal. Um, which is an unusual place to meet someone from UCLA <laughs> and someone from the UK going to Portugal. And, you know, that that just shows um, how there was people from Greece at the training, people from Israel at the training. There was people from all over the world, even just in that um, kind of small uh, group that we had in Portugal. And you met the, is it the prime minister or the president of Portugal? It was the president. We I have to tell this story. It's so funny. I hope your listeners <laughs> So, Ruth, you'll remember that that training took place mm -hmm. in a palace, which yeah. in in, uh, in Porto, Portugal. And I thought that nothing could be cooler than giving you know a training in a palace. But what's mm -hmm. funny is, as we were organizing this training, the the organizer was contacting one of my my training coordinators and was asking, you know, if the very last day of this three day training, if the president could come and give like a one hour sort of talk to the group. And and at the time, I was thinking, you know. The, they were talking about maybe the president of the university or something like that. And so mm. I got, I got a little, you know, uppity about it. And I was like, no, he cannot come for an hour. Um, at the, beginning <laughs> of the third day, he can come for 15 minutes at the end of the last day. And so I get to the training the very last day and I see all the security at the palace and we're having to go through <laughs> metal detectors. And I, and I asked what's going on. Why, why do we have so much security? And they said it was for the president. 
And I realized all of a sudden that when they were talking about the president, they weren't talking about the president of a university. They were talking about the president <laughs> of Portugal. And so what happened was he came for the last 15 minutes of yeah. our training mm -hmm. webinar. That's all he was allowed. So <laughs> I, it's pretty funny. I had no idea that I was giving attitude to the president of, of Portugal, but. Oh, wow. It's, isn't it that that's amazing that he actually agreed to do because, because Professor Liz Lugerson said that he could only come in the last <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but yeah, all the Portuguese people there were really excited. And then there was myself and some people from Greece and Israel who really didn't know what was going on because none of us spoke Portuguese. And we knew it was a president, but again, we weren't completely sure it was a president of Portugal until he turned up with all the security. And we were like, oh, right, okay. <laughs> So that was, yeah, that was an amazing experience, um, meeting a president of a country when you, you go, you know, training in a palace and then meeting the president of the country. Um, and something I always remember you saying at the beginning of that course, and it really stuck with me because I've worked in the autism field for quite a long time as a teacher and, and as a therapist. And, and I've seen what you what you kind of refer to as the firefighting side of things. So getting involved when things have gone wrong already. And, you know, a lot of young people and, and young children that we're working with are not given these strategies and skills before things go wrong. It's when things have gone wrong afterwards. Um, and I think what you said at the very beginning of that course was, you know, there's nothing worse than teaching bad social skills. And there are so many things out there that are kind of put around as useful for children with autism that actually really aren't. So that was a big takeaway for me when I did the peer certification that, you know, the, the fact that this is evidence-based and it's researched and it's actually really well validated and it really works. Um, because I think, like you said, you know, if we're teaching children the wrong things to do, it just makes things worse, doesn't it? And young people as well. Yeah, I mean, it really does. It's it's what we refer to as, um, you know, teaching ecologically valid social skills. So mm -hmm. that means not just teaching what we think that kids should do in social situations, but what actually works in reality. And unfortunately, you know, if you look at the research, you know, the research suggests that social skills training doesn't tend to be very effective kind of generally in the community. Mm -hmm. And I, one of the arguments is that they're not teaching often in these programs ecologically valid skills. They're teaching what adults think that kids should do. And so, you know, the reality is that I think social skills comes very automatic to many people. And so, you know, you think, oh, I have good social skills. I can teach good social skills. But in reality, it's actually very easy to give bad advice in social situations if you haven't looked at the research to see, well, what do socially successful people naturally do? And so I'm hoping at some point we can sort of give your listeners some examples of, of how that happens. But yeah, you know, once again, you don't just because you have good social skills doesn't mean you know how to teach good social skills. So it's, it's no. really important <laughs> that, yeah, that our programs be tested and actually shown to be effective. Yeah. And it's what the cool kids do rather than what the adult who thinks they're good at social skills can tell a child of 30 or young person of 13 or 14. Um, if they don't really understand the world of a teenager anymore. So it's really important to, to be able to give young people that we're working with ecologically valid, well-tested strategies that is going to help them make friends and, and, you know, be in the social world at the right level. If an adult tells them what to do all the time, it's going to, they're not going to be cool, are they? <laughs> if they're doing what their teacher tells them. So in terms of parents in the UK, we've been talking to parents across the UK for our first series of our podcast and access to health services and intervention, particularly child and adolescent mental health services, the CAMS team through the NHS, it's quite limited. And um, it needs to be a real crisis point before anyone gets any kind of support in that area. So typically, 
what happens to parents in the US, when, especially California, um, when they first identify that their child maybe needs some help with their social communication? How do people get access to peers program? Yeah, well, it kind of depends on where you live um, within the U.S. But, you know, many families get um, their intervention services through their school districts um, mm-hmm. or through their medical insurance. Um, in California, we're very lucky because um, families also can get assistance through what is called the regional center. Mm-hmm. And the regional center is a state-funded agency that vendors providers in the community and ultimately provides supports to families free of charge, which is pretty amazing. And so for some of those families who don't have access um, to those types of supports, maybe outside of California, um, they often will have to pay out of pocket for services, which I know, you know, we all know can be very, very costly. So it really sort of depends, probably the same in the UK, where you live um, within the US. Um, But, you know, again, many interventions are provided through school districts and, and sometimes mm-hmm. through medical insurance. Yeah, and you've got a specific um, school-based training, haven't you, as well for peers? So you've got a um, certification for teachers and for classroom aides and people that work in schools? Yes, we do. I mean, that was really um, you know an outgrowth of the original program. Our original mm-hmm. peers intervention for adolescents with autism was focused on kind of a parent-assisted program where, where parents would go through the intervention with their you know, mm-hmm. their, their teen and, and learn about the skills so that they could be good social coaches to their kids out in the real world. But we quickly discovered that there were um, a lot of parents who either weren't able or willing to participate in that type of program. And we knew that, you know, in a lot of schools across the U.S. and really across the globe were often mandated to provide social skills training to young people, particularly those on the autism spectrum. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately, the research suggests that those programs, again, don't tend to be very effective. So that's really what led us to develop our school-based curriculum. And I think it's got a manual as well, which I think there's a few teachers I work with in the UK that haven't been able to go on to one of the the courses, but they've taken the manual and they've used the, the kind of strategies in there and they found it to be really effective within classrooms and classrooms that are kind of bases for children with ASD as well. So it's a really, it's really good hands-on kind of practical strategies that I think teachers and classroom aides have, have really, that I know have really benefited from. Um, so going back to your work in the field, what have been your most interesting or surprising research findings or outcomes um, when you've been looking at social skills in particular? Um, you know, great question. I think probably some of the most surprising research findings we've had came out recently um, in relation to our telehealth outcomes. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, COVID, it was um, a big, big shock to all of us in, in many ways. And, you know, regardless of what industry you're in, it really impacted how people um, provided services or, um, or even, um, you know, in this case, treatment. And so, you know, a lot of people were thinking, oh, well, you can't teach social skills, you know, online using Zoom and different video conference platforms. But, you know, our families were really desperate to get these services. And so we very quickly pivoted to using telehealth delivery um, back in March of 2020. But, Mm. you know, even with all of our clinical groups, and I I know you know this about me, Ruth, but even when I'm running a clinical group, we still collect outcome data, um, even though they're not research participants, because, you know, I care if the group is working for my clinical Mm -hmm. patients as well and and those families. And so we, of course, we're collecting telehealth outcomes. And now it's been over a year that we've been delivering, um, you know, peers to over 100 and family, 150 families every week 
um, yeah. over Zoom and have a great deal of, of telehealth outcome data and have been able to analyze it. And we're, we're currently now just submitting it for um, scientific publication. But the exciting news, and I think the surprising news, is that the telehealth outcomes have been equivalent to oh, in-person. Amazing. Yes, it really is, isn't it? Because I, I don't think I would have predicted that. I don't know what you mm. think, but I would have figured that, you know, anecdotally, I was noticing early on that it seemed to be working. Um, but I don't know that I expected it to be equivalent to in-person. And I think it tells us a lot about the possibilities um, for things like, in this case, social skills training delivery, but also mm-hmm. mental health service delivery that we we may actually you know, be able to reach more people and make, you know, these types of interventions more accessible. Think about people that live in remote areas. Um, I know you know a lot about that and have had to yeah. travel a lot to, <laughs> yeah. to work with families in more remote areas. And wouldn't it be wonderful to make these types of interventions more accessible to people by providing them via telehealth? I know. And that's what we, I mean, I think you were the same as we were. Everyone was taken by surprise. Nobody really knew what was going to happen, how it was all going to work out. But we went to telehealth straight away in March as well, because we had to. And it, we've seen a massive difference in the families that we've worked with and the children that we've been working with, because we've had parents directly involved in the sessions. We always have had um, in the centre, in both centres, but actually having parents being coached in the moment whilst they're with the child. Um, through telehealth and we've done some social skills groups over telehealth that have been surprisingly successful as well especially for our little ones they've been able to wait their turn they've been able to interact with each other on the screen which we weren't kind of sure if that would happen so and the reaching more people has been a big thing for us which I'm sure it has been for you just being able to have we've got people from all over the world that are accessing us now and people from much further up north in Scotland than would ever have maybe accessed us previously so yeah I mean although it's limited our travel it's opened up the world a little bit, I think, for the families that we support, which is great. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and I, in fact, I don't think that telehealth is going to go anywhere, you know, when hopefully COVID is sort of this maybe distant memory. Let's hope that that that's a, becomes a reality. <laughs> but um, I, I think it's just too, um, it's been too beneficial, I think, for so many families to, to really discount it. I, I definitely look forward to being able to run groups in person again. But I do think mm. that telehealth, um, you know, delivery should be an option moving forward, particularly based on our, our research outcomes. And just like you, I mean, we have also really opened up our our treatment delivery services, you know, worldwide now because of this. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, for for a couple of decades now, we've had many families that you know relocate to Los Angeles from different parts of the world just to receive. Um, our services. And that always made me kind of sad, truthfully, because mm. I think that families should have to relocate and, you know, um, move their their whole family just to receive an intervention. And that this is one of the reasons why I've always been very dedicated to providing training to people outside of UCLA and to kind of disseminate and share the program with other people around the globe. But mm-hmm. it's, it's very encouraging to know that we can also provide these services um, via telehealth. So I think it's, you know, it's here to stay. Um, and I think that one of the surprising things about this, as you asked, was that it's so effective. And that's just amazing news, isn't it? Because I think it's like it's things you wouldn't expect to be so successful have been successful. So Although it's been a horrible time for everybody, there have been some positives for people working in our field. Um, yourself and myself, we've seen quite big changes with some of the families and, and kids and young people that we've worked with, which, you know, we thought, 
oh my goodness, we're going to have to go on, you know, we work with preschool children mainly, so we're like, what are we going to do? <laughs> it's going to be on Zoom, but actually it's worked out really well. So, mm-hmm. And we've got a lot of parents that now feel, I think, a lot more empowered. Um, and I think, you know, when they're, you know, some of them children are starting school this year, if they want a job, they could probably come work for us because they know just as much as any of our team uh-huh. about how to engage their child and get the most out of them. So it's brilliant. Um, so what's been your most enjoyable project that you've done um, over the years at UCLA? Well, that's that's a hard question because I, I love all of the, you know, the projects that we've we've done. It's almost like picking a favorite child or something. But um, <laughs> But I, I really have been um, particularly fond of the, the dating curriculum that we more recently developed. And so mm-hmm. you know that in our, our young adult program, we have some sessions on dating etiquette within our um, larger intervention focused on making and keeping friends. But we've mm-hmm. uh, more recently in the last year uh, developed Peers for Dating, which is a 16-week uh, curriculum that's focused on helping adults on the autism spectrum you know, develop and maintain romantic relationships. And that is one of the most enjoyable programs I think I've ever participated in. They're all fun. I mean, don't get me Mm -hmm. wrong. I love all of our programs. But um, this one in particular is a lot of fun. And and so um, what's interesting, too, about Peers for Dating is that initially when we were uh, funded to do this randomized control trial, we were planning on doing this, of course, in person. Um, mm-hmm. And as we did with all of our groups, and then, of course, COVID sort of, you know, put a wrench in all of that. And so we moved our Peers for Dating groups to um, to online, to telehealth using Zoom. And that has also been remarkably effective. And I believe we really reached a lot more young adults because of that. In fact, mm-hmm. I didn't mention this earlier, but, you know, our census doubled during covid we, we doubled the number of families that we saw. There was such a, a strong demand. And, and I think um, part of that is the demand and part of that is the accessibility. And so, um, so we are now in our second cohort for Peers for Dating. We've now enrolled over 50 young adults on the autism spectrum in this program. And um, it's just been a real joy to, to help them to navigate the very complex world. Of dating. <laughs> um, they have dating coaches as part of this program. And dating coaches in this case are uh, peer mentors. These are undergraduate or graduate students mm-hmm. who have some interest in, in autism or neurodevelopmental disabilities and want to be supportive of you know a, a young person on the spectrum. And so we pair them up. We do a speed coaching event where they get to interview each other and decide how much they want to coach this person or be coached by them. <laughs> and, and then they sort of help them with all of those other subtle kind of nuances of dating. And it's been, it's been a real joy. So that's my new kind of uh, labor of love. And you were featured on, oh, is it Love on the Spectrum? Yes, Love on yeah. the Spectrum. I saw Love on the, Netflix or it was Netflix, wasn't it? It's Netflix. Yeah. If people yeah. Have, it's, a, it's a lovely series. It was amazing. I mean, I shed quite a few tears at various episodes um, because it was just so beautiful to watch relationships happen um, between um, young people that may have struggled with that previously, um, but they had the, the right support and, and they, they were really successful. There was a couple of really good ones, though, um, where there were some dates set up with a, a couple of young people that maybe weren't that interested in each other and, and they didn't really click. You know, for some people... That would be a really good kind of skill to learn when they go out for that first date. But actually, they don't have to just make small talk all the time. They can sit there and go, no, I'm really not interested. I want to play on this game that I've brought with me. Um, but no, it was, it was a great show. And I, I saw you on it. I was like, oh, I know Liz. It was very exciting. And that was set in Australia, wasn't it? 
Yeah, that was um, that was set in Australia, uh, and the the boot camp that I did, I did a dating boot camp with some mm-hmm. of the, um, the cast members um, in Sydney, and uh, yeah, it was real. It was very fun uh, to be a part of that, and and I was very proud of that series. I think that they they did a really great job of um, balancing sort of the respect for the cast members, and mm-hmm. but also sort of. Um, you know, there was a lot, it was a funny series. It was, there were some really funny moments and it was very comical, but in a very, you know, respectful way and um, just very heartwarming as well, as you mentioned. Yeah. So. And I think we're working, we work with a lot of, um, because we work with parents and carers very, very directly um, and watching some of the parents of the teens when they were going out for the first date, it was, it was so, yeah, they were so worried, weren't they? It was so sweet to watch. So if you could give advice to parents who have concerns about their child or young person's social development, what would be your top three tips for a young person, maybe just starting high school? Yeah. Well, I mean, in relation to what we do in terms of um, providing, you know, social skills training, I mean, number one is the importance of ecologically valid social skills, as we already talked about. That's, you know, just again, because just because we have good social skills doesn't mean we know how to teach good social skills. And so very well-intentioned parents and adults will sometimes give, you know, this sort of inappropriate advice in, in social situations. And so I would say not to rely on ourselves. And this is true for me, too. I mean, I, the, some of the advice that I hear adults give kids, you know, in social situations, I probably would have given that advice if I hadn't done research in this area. So um, that's probably my first um, and most important tip. Um, I would also say, um, you know, social skills change over the lifespan. So mm-hmm. we need to keep up with the the changing social demands as children age and and develop. And so the social skills that a child needs in preschool are different than the skills they need in in elementary or primary school and then on into secondary school and and even into post-secondary, you know, college settings, university settings, work settings. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we need to keep up with those changing demands. And then, you know, finally, I guess the third tip would be that parents really need to be good consumers. Um, self-advocates also need to be good consumers, making sure that the programs that they're accessing are evidence-based. And they and this is across all forms of you know interventions and that they have research to really support their effectiveness. I mean, we, you know, when we were purchasing a, you know, a product on Amazon, we, we look at the number of, you know, stars they get in the mm-hmm. reviews and all, well, we need to be good consumers with our interventions as well. Yeah, for sure. I think if you Google, there's a lot of stuff on Google. I always tell parents that we start with to stop Googling um, because you can't always tell how well researched something is just by its ranking on Google. So it's a good tip to have. And I think Sally Rogers mentions that in her book as well for um, parents of young children to really make sure that any intervention that you're choosing is evidence-based and it's peer-reviewed. It has strong research behind it. Um, in terms of examples, then, um, a lot of parents listening to this may have young people that are maybe just starting to you know, go through a change in their life with either going to high school or starting university or maybe starting elementary school from preschool. Examples of kind of some of the, the things I learned as a kid, I found, um, I changed the way I thought about quite a lot of the, the things I might have, you know, advised children or parents to, to think about before. So one of the things that was quite different for me was the way that you teach children to deal with 
teasing or bullying. Did you want to give us some examples of, of how that works within the peers program? Yeah, I mean, I would love to. I always love to give examples and kind of bring things to, to life. So um, this is a very good example of where well-intentioned adults can give very bad advice. And so I'm going to actually mm-hmm. put you on the spot here, Ruth, and I'm going to ask you before um, you were familiar with the strategies that we teach in peers, what would you say that most adults would tell kids to do in response to teasing? Yeah, and I would have done the same. So <laughs> it was always to tell an adult, um, to ignore them and tell an adult. That would be, because I was a teacher for years before I did, um, before I set up Blue Sky, and um, yeah, that would be exactly what I would tell any child that came to me to say they were being teased. Completely the wrong thing. <laughs> I mean, well, see, you know that, but a lot of your listeners might not know that that's actually mm. not great advice, right? So I, I asked that question actually to all of the the teens and even adults that I work with, and they, they always say the same thing that you just said. They said they're told yeah. to either, you know, tell someone, maybe tell a teacher, tell an adult. Um, they're also told to ignore, as you mentioned, and mm-hmm. also related to that, they're told to walk away. And yeah. then I asked them if those strategies work. And do you want to guess what they say? No. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't work very well. So let's let's think about what that would look like. So imagine someone's teasing me and I ignore them. What are they going to do? Well, they're probably going to keep teasing me, right? And mm-hmm. I sort of look I kind of look weak in the process because I didn't do anything. I made it easy yeah. for them. So I'm going to be more likely to be teased in that situation. Um if I walk away, well what are they going to do? they're going to follow me, right? And keep teasing me. And again, Mm -hmm. I sort of, I kind of look weak because I didn't do anything. So again, I'm making it so easy for them. Of course, I'm going to be more likely to be teased in the future. And then imagine if I go tell somebody, I go tell a teacher or some adult, now what are they going to want to do? Well, they're going to want to retaliate against me because Mm -hmm. I tried to get trouble. So these are not ecologically valid strategies, even though adults across the globe tell kids to do this. Everywhere I go on the planet, I'm told that kids are told to do those three things and kids Mm -hmm. will tell you they don't work. So instead what we do is we look at what do socially successful kids do to escape teasing and and bullying. And, And the reality is that every kid gets teased. It doesn't matter how popular you are. Every kid is teased. It's how you react to it. That determines how significantly or severely, how chronically you're teased. And so kids who are, you know, able to sort of remove themselves from the situation will do this very simple thing. And they'll just give this very short comeback that shows that what the person said didn't bother them. And actually what the person said was kind of stupid. And so they'll say things like whatever or anyway or yeah, and, or am I supposed to care? Is that supposed to be funny? You know, so what? Big deal. Who cares? They'll roll their eyes. They'll shrug their shoulders. And they give the impression that, again, what the person said really didn't bother them. And that makes the teasing not fun to for the mm-hmm. teaser. And it really, it makes it, it's not reinforcing anymore. And in fact, it even embarrasses the teaser a little bit. Um, which is sort of what you want. You don't want it to be fun for them. So that's a very good example of an ecologically valid social skill. That's what we should be teaching our kids, Mm -hmm. not what we think that they should do in social situations, or even maybe what we were told to do as children, but what we actually know works in reality. 
And it is so effective. So I've seen it in practice and we've taught them those skills from the peer program. And um, yeah, it just, it just makes the other person look silly. So they don't really want to tease that person anymore. And I think in an environment where there's a lot of other people watching kind of teenager, kind of maybe high school, um, if you can just use something really neutral, like you said, you know, whatever, who cares anyway, you know, when are you going to, is that going to, is that supposed to be funny? that makes that other person lose faith in front of all those people and they just don't want to do it anymore. So it is, it's empowering, I think, for children with autism, young people with autism to learn to use something like that that's very neutral. They're not going to get themselves into trouble. They're not going to, that other person isn't going to retaliate at that point, hopefully. It's just a, a way to keep them out of trouble as well. And they're not going to get told off by a teacher for being rude. So it's trying to have that balance, isn't it? Um, so what other examples do you have of, like we've talked about teasing there and there's that kind of, you know, universal bad advice from adults <laughs> to children <laughs> when they get teased. Um, is there another example of a similar skill that peers would teach children or young people um, to make life a lot easier? Oh, yeah. I mean, I could go on and on. Um, but I, I would, I'll just, um, you know, this is the time of year when, when kids are going back to school, depending on when people listen to this podcast. And um, so a lot of kids at this point are getting advice from, again, well-intentioned, you know, adults or parents about how to meet new people. Maybe they're mm -hmm. starting a new school or a new grade and they don't really know all of their classmates. And so um, I'll, I'm going to put you on the spot again, Ruth. What do you think <laughs> that most young people are told to do to meet new people? Imagine they're, you know, starting at a new school. They don't know anybody. What are they told to do? Go up and introduce themselves. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Go up and introduce themselves or maybe go up and say hi. Um, and that's, again, a question I ask, you know, all the young people I work with, and they always say those same two things. They're said to told to go up and say hi or go up and introduce themselves. But have you ever thought about what that looks like? Right. I know you've thought about this, Ruth, but I mean, for <laughs> others, for your listeners, have you ever thought about what that would look like? Imagine that we're in some public place we've never met before. And I walk up and say, hi, I'm Liz. <laughs> what would you think of me? Think I would of just, me? yeah, I would think that was unusual, <laughs> especially yeah, in London. Oh, especially anywhere, really. I mean, maybe London, <laughs> but no, it's a really weird thing to do. And and even socially successful people that give that advice, I don't even think they would do that. I think again that social skills often come so automatic to so many people that they don't even think about what they're doing. And so, if you take a look at research that sort of has broken this this strategy down of how do people you know talk to other people, start conversations, or or even enter existing conversations, there's very specific steps that people follow. So imagine again, there were in this public place and maybe Ruth, you're standing there talking with some of your friends or, or colleagues and, you know, how am I going to approach your group? How am I going to, to engage and, and talk to you? Well, I'm not going to go up and say hi or introduce myself because that would be kind of intrusive and strange. Instead, I would probably sort of watch the conversation and listen from a distance, but I wouldn't want to look you know, like a creepy stalker staring at you guys. So <laughs> I'd probably be using, you know, a prop to look distracted, like a phone or something. Mm -hmm. But, you know, basically I'm eavesdropping on your conversation. I just don't want to look like I'm eavesdropping. And I'm going to figure out what the topic is, what you're talking about. And I should probably know something about the topic. So I should have some sort of a, a common interest. Otherwise, you know, if I join a, a conversation where I don't know the topic, 
I'm probably going to to slow the conversation down, right? It's going to be kind of boring for you, boring for me. So I definitely need to find some sort of common interest. And then assuming that I I find something that I I know about that you're talking about, I'm not going to just yell from across the room, right? (laughs) I'm going to move a little bit closer, right? Maybe not too close, no closer than maybe an arm's length away. Um, I don't want to, you know, interrupt the conversation or barge in. So I'm going to wait for a little pause in the conversation. And then I'm going to mention the topic, right? And I can do that in one of three ways. I can either make a comment about what you're talking about. I could ask a question about what you're talking about, or I could give a compliment kind of related Mm -hmm. to the topic. And then, you know, of course, I need to start assessing your interests because just because I follow the appropriate steps for entering doesn't mean that, you know, there's a guarantee you're going to accept me into the conversation. So the next part is, you know, assessing whether or not you're you're interested. And this is kind of fascinating when people, um, when I ask people often, how can you tell if somebody wants to talk to you? Most people will say that it's a feeling that you mm-hmm. get. But, you know, in reality, there are concrete behaviors that give us those feelings. So if you were interested in talking to me, you and your friends, Ruth, what would you be doing with your eyes if you're interested? Yeah, we would be looking in your direction, looking at you. Yeah. And what would you be doing with your bodies if you wanted to talk to me? I mean, yeah, you'd be you'd be facing towards me, kind of turning towards me. You can do this thing. We call it opening the circle. You know, when people Mm -hmm. talk they talk in a circle and they kind of open it when they want to talk to you. And if they don't want to talk to you, they kind of close the circle. And then the third behavioral sign is that you're actually talking to me, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're not giving rude comments or short replies. And those are the three behavioral signs that tell me if you want to talk to me. And then if things are going well after a while and, you know, you seem to still be interested, then I can introduce myself. And, you know, those introductions are optional, but they always come later, you know, mm-hmm. these conversations don't start with introductions. They, they come later. And so those are the types of strategies that we want to teach our kids, you know, when meeting new people, starting new schools. Um, and again, that's where we have to sort of rely on the research to tell us well, what do people do in reality. Mm-hmm. And it is that that whole focus on what do the cool kids do? You've looked at that, you've researched that, and this is what we're teaching the young people that we're supporting and that makes life so much easier in the long run. And I think, you know, it's such an effective way to support young people to, to make friends and to be in the social world. Um, so it's been honestly one of the best trainings I've ever attended was the kids um, certification, um, just because it actually started to, to help me to make sense of what I tried to teach. I'd, I'd been trying to teach young people and children I'd worked with for a long time. Um, social skills, because that's what you do when you work with children on the autistic spectrum. Um, but it just broke everything down into really kind of easy steps for me to be able to think, okay, well, this is what I need to be able to, to support these children or young people to be able to do um, to have successful friendships and, you know, rules as well. Like you have um, lots of really great rules in, in the peers sessions that you're teaching the young people about, you know, when to contact people. Um, you know, if you're just making friends with someone, you don't want to text them or wing them at like 11 o'clock at night or you know, things like that are really useful to know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for the compliment about the training. I, I really, that means a lot to me. Thank you for saying that. And, you know, I, I you know a lot about this program. And, and one of the first things that I, I mentioned in trainings, like the one that you attended is um, that, you know, s- friendships are a choice. You know, we mm-hmm. don't get to be friends with everybody and not everybody gets to be friends with us. And that's that's true for everyone. But even just using so you know good social skills is also a choice. And so one of the first things that we always you know assess for 
when we're working with families is whether or not the young person that we'll be working with is really socially motivated and intrinsically motivated mm-hmm. to learn the skills that we're teaching. And I think that's because, you know, first of all, the, the program wouldn't work very well if the, you know, the, the teen or young adult didn't want to be there. But mm-hmm. also, I'm not sure it's very ethical to force no. social skills onto people who don't want to learn them. And so that's really the first question is, you know, does this young person even want to learn these skills? Mm-hmm. Um, are they motivated? And then if they are, we want to make sure we're giving them good social skills. Yeah. And that's a really important takeaway, I think, for any of the professionals listening, isn't it? And parents, because there is, a, you know, there are young people that I've supported over the years who don't always want to be in a busy social world and, and have, you know, thousands of friends and, and have to be in, you know, busy places and crowded, organised events and things. And I think it's respecting that part of a person if they don't want to be learning skills to make friends, and that's absolutely fine. Um, it's their choice. And I think there's a lot of times where I've been in schools as a teacher where we've, you know, we've, we've been forcing social skills teaching onto children who are just on young people who are just not really wanting to do that. Um, and I think that's a really important part of it. And friendship is a choice. Um, and that's, that's, I tell my staff that as well. <laughs> when they're going out into the big wide world, you know, friendship's a choice. You don't have to be friends with everybody. Um, and that's important for young people to, to learn too, because, you know, there's a lot of times at schools where they, they're kind of like told they have to be friends with everybody, you have to be nice for everybody. And when you're an adult, you don't like everyone you meet. That's, that's, that's life, isn't it? So, um, yeah. being able to empower young people from the start to know that <laughs> that they don't have to like everybody they don't have to be friends with everyone but having good social skills to be able to make that choice in a you know in a way that they're empowered to do so is there anything else you wanted to talk about um sure i mean i guess if if you know people and families want to learn a little bit more about some of the skills that we teach in peers they can certainly check out um our website it's mm-hmm. um it's semel.ucla dot edu slash peers. You can just Google UCLA peers and find us that way. We also are on um, social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we like to make um, a lot of our, you know, services pretty accessible to our families. Mm -hmm. And so you can even find a a library of over a hundred role play videos that we use in our programs that are just, you know, free for anyone to use and learn a little bit more about some of the skills that we teach in peers. And you have an app as well, don't you? Yeah, actually, um, we had, I, I wrote a book called The Science of Making Friends back in, I think it was 2014 now, so quite a while ago. And it came along, it actually had a companion app called Friend Maker, um, which, you know, has actually since then, um, it's no longer adaptable or accessible with certain iOS devices. Um, hmm. I guess the publisher just kind of gave up on all the updates. But since then, I'm very excited to report that we, um, we've we now developed a peers app. Um, it is available in English and also in Dutch and will be available in other oh, wow. languages as well. Yeah. And it's um, it's being beta tested right now, but it's we're launching that app, the Peers app, this October 2021. And so people will be able to access that. It will be free of charge in the App Store. And it um, it kind of operates as a almost a video game, but it's got mm. all the different skills that we teach in Peers related to making and keeping friends, uh, handling conflict and rejection, and also some sessions on dating etiquette for the English version of the app. So 
be oh, that sounds really exciting. And I think having an app is it just makes it so accessible to young people as well because you know young people like to use phones and screens and often much better than I am at things like that. So being able to have access to something like that as an app that they can look at in their own time as well is really really effective way to kind of disseminate peers even even further, isn't it? It's amazing. So thank you very much, Liz, for talking to us. It's been brilliant to talk to you and it's been lovely to catch up because we haven't spoken for quite a long time. Um, and it would be great to see you again in London sometime when you're allowed to travel again because we've missed you. <laughs> oh, and I well, think you've, I... you've, missed, you've missed London as well, I know, because you used to love to come here, didn't you? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. London is, is my favourite city outside of the US and so I always enjoyed visiting you and, and my other friends in London. So I, I look forward to the time when we can all meet again in person. But in the meantime, thank you so much for you know the kind invitation to speak on your podcast. Thank you so much to, great to catch for joining up. us on this episode. It was great to catch up and it was great to talk about social skills. Social skills is an area that is much focused on working with young people and um, younger children with autism. But it's great to have something like peers, which is really strongly evidence-based models so that we know when we use something like peers, we are not going to be teaching bad social skills. We're going to be teaching what the cool kids do or ecologically valid social skills. Um, and also, please remember that friendship is a choice. That's a big takeaway from the peers program. If you'd like to know more about Liz's work, then check out UCLA Peers at the Semmel Institute. And um, I would highly recommend the certification program for professionals. Um, like I said, it's, it's probably the best schools I've actually ever done in terms of learning practical skills that really make a massive difference and learning some new ways to really support children with autism and young people with autism learn how to be successful in making friends. Thank you for listening. And if you think we might be able to help you, we can be found at www.bluesky.autism.com or at www.playtotalk.co.uk. Oh,